I think that's better. Okay. I think we'll get started. Um, I'm Kathy Lyons, and I'd like to welcome everyone who's streaming us live and everyone in the room. Um, it's my privilege to be able to introduce our speaker today. Um, and we are very fortunate to have Dr. Laura Gitlin up here from Johns Hopkins University. Um, and we're fortunate because the Centers for Health and Aging are sponsoring her visit with us today. Uh, many of you in the room know that the Centers for Health and Aging, we have a mission where we're committed to research and education and training providers to care for the older adults in our region. We have our co-directors, Dr. Bartels and Dr. Flaherty here in the room. Um, and we are very grateful. This is one of the opportunities the Centers for Health and Aging um, lets us bring leading scholars in the nation up to talk about the complexities of caring for the older adults here in New Hampshire. Uh, so thank you for letting us host her. Um, it is a distinct privilege and a pleasure to welcome Laura here. Um, Dr. Laura Gitlin is an applied research sociologist, and she is a professor in the Department of Community Public Health and School of Nursing with joint appointments in the Department for Psychiatry and the Division of Geriatric Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. She's also the founding director of the Center for Innovative Care and Aging at Hopkins, uh, which is transforming healthcare delivery and the health and well-being of older adults and their families through rigorous research, training of health and human service professionals in evidence-based interventions and model of care, and translation and implementation of proven interventions in service delivery settings. Dr. Gitlin is a nationally and internationally recognized for her research on developing, testing, and implementing novel non-pharmacologic interventions to improve the quality of life of persons with dementia and their family caregivers and their daily function of older adults with functional disability. Um, she has numerous awards that would take me 20 minutes to read. Um, she's the author of over 20, 200 scientific publications and has authored many books, including a six book that's coming out on behavioral intervention research. So Laura, it's, it's such an honor to have you here and we're looking forward to your talk. Hi, good afternoon, thank you. Can you hear me? Is this loud enough? So uh, it's, it's a great pleasure to be here, and I was asked specifically to talk about caregivers of people with dementia, which I applaud you all for wanting to hear about. Uh, as that symbol uh, suggests, uh, dementia is not just about a brain disease. It really affects the person and their quality of life, and most people with dementia do live at home. And most people, uh, the vast majority of people, live with or close by to a family member. So unlike other conditions, although we may want to argue that, in fact, in geriatrics, uh, the uh, care of someone with dementia is intricately linked to a uh, family caregiver or caregivers and formal and informal caregivers. So I want to spend, let's see how I do this. Okay, what I'd like to do is just give you a sense of just uh, by way of setting the stage, uh, what does it mean to be a family caregiver of someone with dementia? And then I'm going to talk a little bit about what we know works in supporting families because actually we have, this is a very robust area of research, which is very exciting. We have great depth in the knowledge 
uh, that we uh, have generated in terms of caregiver interventions. So we, we really do know uh, what works. And I'll kind of take you on a whirlwind tour of just uh, highlighting just some of the interventions that I've worked with with uh, my teams. And then I want to uh, hopefully have time to discuss just a little bit about why do some of, you know, how do we think, how do we know and why do these interventions work? Uh, mechanisms of action by which we get uh, good uh, effects or moderate, uh, small to moderate effect sizes, as you will see uh, shortly in terms of our interventions, uh, there hasn't been too much attention on, well, why do they work and how do they work? And so I'm going to spend a little bit of time just talking about that. And then our big challenge, which I really want to leave time for questioning and so forth and to uh, brainstorm together is, uh, this is an area where there's, uh, as I said, some depth to knowledge and how do we transfer that knowledge into real action in terms of really supporting uh, families of caregivers and, and people with dementia. So the knowledge transfer piece or however you want to refer to it, translation and implementation, is really just huge in this area. Uh, and I'll try to highlight uh, throughout the talk the reasons why that is the case. Uh, but I will tell you right up front, as many of you, I know many of you are uh, uh, health professionals in addition to being researchers is that, if I can go back, words, you know, uh, our healthcare system is all about the brain and that person versus that house and the other people in that house. And so that's a big barrier in terms of moving forward with integrating the knowledge we have about what caregivers need uh, into health system delivery. So I'm hoping that we'll get a chance to uh, talk about that. Uh, so I just obviously want to uh, recognize that a lot of the points I'm going to be making and some of the research I'm going to be showing has been uh, funded. And these are various uh, funding sources that have supported the research that I'll be talking talking about, I have no disclosures or sources of conflict, and you never do this alone. Uh, randomized trials in general uh, really require a team, and everything uh, that I'll be talking about has to do with uh, my many collaborators and teams who have helped me develop and test and implement the interventions that I'll be talking about. Uh, so I want to set the stage. So uh, this is just a case, a snapshot, if you will. Uh, this is Mr. Smith. He cares for his wife at home. She was diagnosed with dementia four years ago. Uh, he only learned of the Alzheimer's Association by chance. Uh, and because it wasn't clear whether she had vascular dementia or some other kind of mixed dementia, uh, no one ever recommended the Alzheimer's Association. Uh, he has received information from them, which he found helpful. Uh, he had to stop working to care for his wife, and he's really uh, feeling some financial strain here. He's becoming increasingly isolated and depressed. He's having difficulty managing Mrs. Smith's increasing physical dependence. She's basically in the moderate stage of the disease, and she's demonstrating a whole range of very disturbing behavioral symptoms, pacing, repetitive questioning, trying to leave the home, rejecting his needed help. And he's not really sure how to engage her. And he's very concerned about his qual her quality of life because he is responsible for that. Uh, his sons do not live close by, and he doesn't receive nor can he afford any in-home help. Um, he, she is on some medications, uh, particularly anticholinesterase medications, but they don't appear to have done uh, anything at this point in her disease progression, and they, she was recently taken off of them because of negative side effects. So does this sound familiar? Okay, it does, right? I mean, this is it. 
I mean, we can change the players, we can change the behaviors, but this is what it is, and this is what it is. <laughs> and I'll tell you what's really powerful for me personally about this case. I started doing uh, intervention work with families 30 years ago. This is the first case I ever had. And I have to say, I have uh, several trials now in Baltimore and elsewhere, and the families don't look any different. So that's one of the messages I have here that we really need to uh, problem solve as to how we're going to integrate supporting um, Mr. Smith into um, our dementia care trajectory. And obviously we don't have a really good dementia care trajectory, which is part of the problem as well. But really our essential question is how can we support him? And if you notice, I mean, I hope already you started ticking off the things that could be done for him. He needs, what does he need? Care management, what else? He's getting a little depressed, Mark, <laughs> right? Problem yeah, problem solving, right? <laughs> uh, what else would he need? Respite. Finan respite, financial, uh, some kind of financial planning, education. I mean, so it, my basic point is we know what to do, and we have now tested these interventions in ways that we know how to deliver them. As, as you'll see. So just to back up, what's really, uh, I think, a step forward uh, is that there has been a pretty much uniformity among uh, uh, medical uh, associations as to what should be our treatment goals uh, for dementia. It's not a curable disease, right? It's progressive, it's de uh, degenerative, it occurs over many, many years, right? So what should our treatment goals be? And actually, these are six basic goals that come from a variety of sources, and they've been endorsed worldwide. Uh, and as a matter of fact, many countries are way ahead of us in terms of having a national Alzheimer's plan that endorses these goals. And of course, one of the basic goals, which I, uh, you know, again, when we think of a patient having dementia, becomes very uh, challenging for us because our whole reimbursement system obviously is on that patient, is how are we going to support the family? Uh, but these, just keep these in the back of, of your mind. Uh, because in order to achieve all the other goals here in dementia care, we have to rely mostly on family caregivers. Uh, we not only rely on them, we assume they will care for someone with dementia, and we demand that they will care for someone with dementia. So families rarely have a choice, basically, whether they're going to participate in the care of someone with dementia who could have the disease from time of diagnosis as a terminal illness to their death for upwards of 20 years. So what do we rely on families for? Well, they help us actually uh, make a diagnosis because it is the family caregiver's uh, uh, report also of changes in behavior and so forth. We, we rely on them to carry out disease management, uh, coordinate the doctor visits, make sure that the person is okay from various care transitions, from hospital to home, from adult day to home, et cetera, to assure adherence to medication regimes. Uh, that families make everyday uh, care decisions. Uh, how well hydrated the person is, whether they should get an antibiotic or not. I mean, families are making uh, from micro to macro decisions in the home with very little knowledge, very little understanding. We had a, uh, this just remind me of a case uh, where a husband said to us in our trial, you know, my, my wife, I can tell she has a lot of pain and she's complaining of having headaches, but I know that's just part of the disease process, so we don't bother to give her Tylenol or a pain reliever. So this is, again, just what it is to be a caregiver. Uh, 
Families are responsible for managing fall risk, functional decline, and I'm going to go into a little bit more detail about the impact of behavioral symptoms. We assume that they will give proxy consent in treatments and our research, and we also rely on them to determine whether whatever we're doing works. Did the anticholinesterase medication work or not? Do you see a difference? It's all about the family, yet we have not integrated that person in a reasonable way into the care of the person with dementia. And that I can't, you know, I have to make that point in a, over and over again because that is our collective challenge here. So this is a survey conducted by uh, some colleagues of mine, many of you know Costas Lykhetsos and Quincy Sanis, called the Maximizing Independence at Home. It just, I just want to give you now just a bird's eye view of some of the needs that caregivers have. So of 303 families of individuals with some kind of cognitive impairment, 84% lacked, lacked basic education, just basic education about the disease process. Eighty-eight needed some kind of referral to a resource. Forty-five percent had a significant clinical mental health issue, uh, whether it be depression or anxiety or some other issue. And twenty-four percent had a medical health problem that needed to be attended to. So uh, that gives you a sense of just the, the, you know, the big impact. But now what I want to do is kind of relate the caregiver needs and caregiver challenges have to be linked to what's going on to the person that they're caring for. And this is a trajectory uh, from normal to severe that's recognized as, if you will, uh, the different stages of the dementia process. And we see at the mild, even at the preclinical, I could have made that box a little longer, and at the mild cognitive impairment, we already see, right, our patients indicating that they have memory complaints, that they're anxious, they have depression. There's already signs of changes in their executive function. And we also have some data, not a lot, but a growing body of data that shows even at this very early stage, we have caregivers whose anxiety is very high. We have caregivers who are testing with clinical depression. We have caregivers who are taking days off from work in order to take the person at this mild stage to doctor's offices. Uh, and they are beginning to offer support in instrumental activities of daily living, shopping, checking in on the person, uh, beginning to manage uh, medications. So even at this very early stage, we could do something in terms of intervention. But by the way, I'll come back to this. There are not many, there are very, very few interventions at this stage. If you guys are thinking of moving forward with caregiver interventions, that's one area that could really benefit from your touch. Look at the early to moderate, moderate severe. What do we have in terms of patient symptomology? We have an increase, although this is throughout the disease process, we have an increase of behavioral symptoms. We have an increase of dependence. We have an increase in executive dysfunctions, unable to initiate, unable to effectively organize an activity, unable to plan activities safely. Nothing to do, sitting on a couch all day long, right? Um, increase in home safety concerns, uh, and a lot of comorbidities which are not managed at all. Because these are people who are aging, not only with cognitive impairment, but they are aging with fall risk. They're aging with 
vision issues, they're aging with heart disease, and that it makes the situation extremely complex for the health system, and then put yourself in the seat of the caregiver. So now they're managing all these things. And is the pain a result of the dementia, or is it a result of something else, uh, et cetera? So at caregivers, at the moderate stage, we see a spike in the percentage of caregivers who are anxious and depressed, who have their own physical symptoms, particularly if they're involved in tra transfers um, and or getting their uh, family member, their husband, off the floor when he fell because he's at risk for falling. Uh, so there's um, issues around employment, just as you saw Mr. Smith leaving work, particularly at the moderate stage. Uh, again, issues of how do I med medically manage wound care and the dementia and medication and so forth. So uh, that's, that's the picture here. And then at the severe stage, we have typically an increase in pain that actually does go unmanaged with people with dementia, language deficits, continuation of dependence and behavioral symptoms. And we have caregivers continuing with their hand-on care and so forth. And we begin to see issues of uh, complicated grief and so forth uh, and, and uh, poor affect throughout. Now, is that true for all caregivers? No, of course. Uh, but it depends upon one's uh, uh, resources, capability, and social support, and so forth. But this is the profile for most families uh, in anywhere in the United States, really. So the question again is what can we do? And most of the interventions have occurred at the moderate disease stage, and that's what I'm going to go on and talk to you about in a moment. But I would be remiss if I didn't speak specifically to the extreme challenges of behavioral symptoms uh, which uh, occur throughout the disease process. And the problem with behavioral symptoms is that they're, uni they're almost universal. They occur at every disease stage, and they occur across etiologies. And they are not assessed. They're undertreated and undermanaged, and they account for over a third of the cost of dementia care and for most of the hospitalizations, which are triggered by a family member who cannot manage the behavioral symptom. So uh, any of you in a clinic and you assess for behaviors? Does anyone use a standardized? Yeah, what do you use? <laughs> Um, mainly the caregiver reports we use the behavioral logs, um, but we, I don't use a, a standardized screening tool. Um, I, I, I try to get a, so the caregivers expect us to come up with a plan, but we need them to give us the information. Right. So we use the behavioral logs, so okay. detailed. Okay, great. Good. Anybody else systematically assess who's in a position to assess? <laughs> Yeah, so they, this is not integrated into uh, dementia care, unfortunately, nor when you are assessed as a caregiver is this an area uh, that you're assessed for. But I wanted you to just hear what people live with, with behaviors. So I'm gonna, in most of our trials, we find that families are managing anywhere from six to 10 behavioral challenges from 
hallucinations, delusions, which are not that prevalent, but uh, rejection of care, aggressiveness, a lot of anxiety, a lot of agitation. So this is our interviewer working with a son who's caring for his 89-year-old mother. And the interviewer walked in and heard the mother screaming, which you'll hear in a moment. Uh, and she asked the son, oh, please, you know, please attend to your mom. Is she okay? I can come back. I can do the interview another time. He says, oh, no, no, no. Let's continue. And uh, she said, you know, he says, this, this, she just woke up. This happens all the time, and she'll just do this all day long. So let's just continue. So he's totally calm. And the interviewer is trying to conduct the interview. And it was a very upsetting interview for her. But I just wanted you to hear, this is, if I can get to it, um, this is what he hears. I'm just stuck here. This is what he hears all day long. And did you receive any special equipment to help manage dementia, like grab bars or monitoring devices? No. Mm -hmm. no. Uh, could you specify the number of meals delivered to your mother in the past three months? Uh, delivered to her mm -hmm. here at the home? I like just, meals on meals, or do you make it? Uh, I make all our meals. So you just get an eye. That's literally what his day is like and so forth. And this is now the caregiver, if I can get to. I don't know how to get to this. There we go. If I can get to this, this is a, uh, a husband caring for his wife who cries a lot, and this is how he discusses the impact on him. Sometimes he keeps me up the night, you know, crying. I can't stop her from crying. She's like this crying spell, you know. And I don't know why she cries, and she don't know why she cries either. You know? <laughs> That one night, uh, she was crying so much. I had to go in the other room and uh, uh, shut the door. I couldn't stand when I was crying. It's nerve wracking, yeah? That's why I'm taking these uh, uh, nerve pills and depression pills. Because it, you know, it just gets to me, you know? Yeah, so, I mean, again, just an example of really what daily life is, particularly at the, at the, moderate, uh, at the moderate stage. Uh, so this is from a um, trial of uh, 239 individuals, and you can see that caregivers, 80% of the caregivers reported that they were actively managing repetitive questions that were, were, were troublesome to them. Uh, close to 70% were uh, managing uh, a lot of argumentation. Uh, close to 70% had issues regarding uh, proper, uh, appropriate uh, toileting and toileting schedules. 60%, uh, close to 60% indicated that the person they were caring for was upset and agitated and so forth. So again, just, you know, again, the mix in this particular trial, caregivers were managing up to 10, uh, 10 of these behaviors on a regular basis. Um, so, so how can we help this mix? That's, and I just gave you a little bird's eye profile of what some of the issues are. And so I'm going to talk now a little bit about what we know works and, um, and uh, some of the research that we've done. So we recently conducted, uh, this, this area is interestingly enough in terms of caregiver intervention research, so robust that we conducted uh, a uh, review of reviews. And we had over 28 reviews of reviews going back for almost 50 years. Now, obviously, not every study and intervention is, is wonderful. Uh, but the point is that we were able to identify over 200 interventions 
that had some one or more benefits to the person, the caregiver, which is really, that's big, right? That's a lot of, you know, a lot of knowledge, right? Uh, and in totality, that they were done over uh, with a num with over 8,000 families, and there is not a lot of consensus in the literature as to how to conceptualize these interventions. But our best attempt was to identify these six broad areas: uh, an intervention that provided some kind of professional support, uh, such as um, uh, care management, uh, psychoeducation where you're not only providing education, but you're helping families uh, cognitively reframe their situation in a way and giving uh, effective problem solving. One of the biggest issues in caring for a person with dementia who has behaviors is that families consider the behavior, they don't understand the behavior. They don't understand that it is a consequence of the disease process and also things that are happening in their environment. That's the best knowledge we have about behaviors. It's this interaction. What do they see? Their husband has always been stubborn, and he's doing this on purpose to hurt me. Or, you know, my mother always disliked me, and she's just picking on me, which is not an effective way of thinking about it because it's not true, and it doesn't allow you to engage in other kinds of strategies that could be effective. So really providing psychoeducation that allows cognitive reframing and understanding is a huge uh, intervention approach. Again, behavioral management and skills training. How do you manage behaviors? Using uh, you know, the traditional ABC and problem-solving approaches uh, is another whole classification of interventions. Uh, combining all of these or using counseling and psychotherapy, uh, bringing families together to get them all on the same page uh, is very, very important because family conflict is very rife in these families. So I'm caring for my mom in uh, Baltimore, and my, uh, my brother, this is make-believe, my brother, this is hypothetical, my brother's in California, and he says, Mom's fine, you know? I'm on the phone with her. She sounds great. You're just trying to take over her house and her finances. You're trying, that's very typical of what we see. As a matter of fact, I had to do grand rounds in Chile, and the case they gave was exactly that. And I said, oh, wow, it's cross-cultural. You know, it was pretty amazing. I, I thought that it was pretty amazing. At any rate, um, introducing families to tools that they can use to manage situational anxiety, very simple stress reduction techniques. And then the most effective interventions are multi-component. They have components of each of these. The trick is delivering these kinds of strategies, which all have some level of evidence, to the families that need them at the time that they need them and to address their specific needs. And, th and that's a challenge. Uh, but I think we've really, uh, we've gotten there. Uh, the other challenge that you'll see is that the outcome measures have been important, but they've mostly emphasized uh, burden, reduction of burden, depression, anxiety, and improvement in self-efficacy. Uh, all important, but I'll come back to this at the very end. We don't have good outcomes for any of these in terms of uh, healthcare utilization, cost savings, uh, whether it impacts the health of family caregivers. All very critical um, outcomes that unfortunately have not been looked at even though we have a robust uh, 
body of, of research. So in terms of reducing caregiver burden, what we find is that inter, you know, we have small to moderate effect sizes if we take a look across the interventions that reduce caregiver burden. We know how to improve caregiver knowledge, and again, the effect sizes of these trials across the review of reviews uh, is small to large. The same thing with caregiver anxiety and caregiver depression. So we can make, you know, what I think, you know, we could argue, you know, clinically significant differences, although uh, a measurement problem is that many of our tools do not have clinical cutoffs, but, but that's something that um, we can see from effect sizes uh, could that, that we have a positive effect, not only statistically, but clinically. So let's, I want to dig a little deeper here in terms of what do these interventions look like and, and what, you know, what do they look like uh, and what, what are their components. So I think, are you familiar with uh, Mary Middleman's work that's been um, really getting attention now with uh, monies from the, um, the uh, ACL, used to be the Administration on Aging uh, and its translation, but she uses a combination of counseling, uh, individual counseling and bringing families together. Her main work was on, her main trial was on uh, spouses. Joe Gogler and others in Minnesota have looked at it with children. Some good effects, not as powerful possibly with spouses, but still pretty good. Uh, and so she's been able to show reductions in upset and over time, because this is an intervention for which a caregiver has access to counselors for the duration of the disease, she's been able to show declines in um, institutionalization or placement, okay? Uh, but then this is where it gets complex in terms of the evidence. But she doesn't impact behaviors, and that's one of the drivers of institutionalization and so forth. Uh, she doesn't impact functional decline and some of the aches and pains that caregivers impact. So part of the message here is, in, in fact, there isn't one magic bullet. There isn't going to be one pill. There isn't going to be one intervention that can do it all. We have to take pieces of all of these and construct a care trajectory for caregivers that's part of the care trajectory for people with dementia. So I'm sure you're familiar with the NIH, NIA, NINR, REACH2, uh, which involved um, a identification of areas in which caregivers were at risk and then the tailoring of strategies to those areas of risk. And here we see improvements in family caregiver well-being, and we do see caregivers reporting some benefit in a reduction in overall the number of behaviors that they're dealing with and their, um, their management. Now here we have a case where interventions show the most benefit with Latino families and secondarily white families and no effect for African-American families. Why? It's been unclear, and this is where mechanisms of action research is so important. And if you delve a little deeper, you see that spouse African-Americans do benefit, but they're a very small number uh, in this particular sample, and most African-Americans with dementia are cared for by a non-spouse. So again, it shows the power of our interventions, but also we have to do a little bit better, right? Because what's true about African-Americans as well as Latinos? They're most affected, right, Different, uh, disproportionately with dementia, uh, and they're living longer 
with the disease. Uh, they're, they're diagnosed later, and then they live as long as others with the disease. Uh, so I want to just showcase a couple of things that we've been doing. This is one of our first attempts to integrate some of the knowledge of REACH and the other interventions in an existing, uh, in an existing service delivery setting. So uh, you must have adult day services here, right? No, limited. Okay. Well, adult day services actually is an important service mechanism across the country uh, that provides, uh, you know, ostensibly a place, right? You know, it's a day service. Some actually are, have overnight stays as well. Uh, uh, for people with um, older adults with cognitive and or physical impairment, the vast majority of people who are using adult day have a cognitive impairment and have a diagnosis of dementia. I think it's around 60 to 70%. And it was designed in many cases for um, not only to help the person, the older adult with these impairments, to provide them with an enriched environment and to attend to various medical and functional needs and need for activity, but also to give the caregiver respite. But there's been a nice body of research that has shown that while it does that, and Zared and others just came out with a wonderful study that showed that just the use of adult day reduces stress in caregivers, there's also been research to show that uh, the burden of caregivers stays pretty high. And caregivers, we know, don't even know how to effectively use their day off and, and, and use respite. So we added the best of all the components of interventions. We had um, a care management, referral and linkage, disease education, skills training and behavioral management, and a whole unit of taking care of yourself and using stress reduction and problem solving. Uh, and what we did is we trained uh, anybody who is available in adult day. So the intervention isn't discipline specific. It could be an OT, it could be the intake worker, it could be a care manager, it could be a nurse who worked with the family member at a time that was convenient for them. So we d tried to design an intervention that could be integrated into the daily workflow of adult day and family life. So when the caregiver dropped off, a person with dementia, their loved one at an adult day center, they could meet up with the adult day plus interventionist. Uh, and they went through a series of, um, of uh, assessments, care planning, and uh, education and skills training. And we tested it at a pilot level through funding from the Administration on Aging uh, with three sites. And we had really great outcomes. It's a small sample, but we show an improvement uh, the ADS plus is, what would you call that color? Like chartreuse? I don't know. <laughs> Purple? I don't know. At any rate, uh, we show an increase in the family's sense of self-efficacy in managing troublesome behaviors. Um, I don't have the slide, but we do show a, a decrease in uh, behavioral disturbances. We show a, a decrease in uh, depression, although uh, the biggest impact was at six months, th three and four three and six months, and we have a slight escalation at 12 months. Uh, so that, you know, warrants some consideration as to what kind of boosters and, and what we're doing there. But at this, okay, there we go. Uh, but what was very compelling for adult day services is this is a survival curve that shows that those in the adult day plus the first line um, versus the second line of those who just did not have the caregiver plus part, they spent more days, family used adult day for more time. And uh, 
there were double the number of persons who were admitted to a nursing home in usual care versus ADS plus. So we're very excited about this intervention because it fits within an organization, a system of care, and it is added value. And uh, we're seeking to now test it nationally at adult day services throughout. Another intervention I wanted to share with you was very, was very targeted to improving the ability of families to understand behavioral symptoms and also uh, manage them and potentially prevent them. And this involved a combination of an OT and a nurse who visited with caregivers in their home for over 11 sessions. So there was one visit by a nurse, and what did she do? She worked with the caregiver for almost up to two hours in providing basic education, uh, how to monitor hydration, uh, how to detect pain, uh, what to ask the doctor. The nurse also conducted a um, brown bag medication uh, review of the person with dementia also drew blood and urine from the person with dementia. The point was to rule out whether any of these polypharmacy or an underlying infection might be contributing to the behavioral uh, symptoms that were present. This is the trial for which people were managing up to 10 uh, behaviors, active behaviors. Interestingly enough, I'll just uh, skip to one of the findings. We found that 36% of the patients, people with dementia for whom we could get blood, which was over 90% of the people, and urine, had an untreated medical issue, which is huge. Um, and at the time, our DSMB, our Data Safety Monitoring Board and NIA wanted to know, because initially, uh, with the first couple of uh, waves of recruitment, it was up to like 90%. Of course, that was right without that even doubt. But they wanted to know, should we stop the trial? And now everyone should be, you know, engage, you know, have this kind of test. Uh, because there isn't any uh, real data out there as to the prevalence of this. There's some uh, prevalence data from nursing homes and hospitalized dementia patients, which, by the way, is around the 30-some percent of these patients having these kinds of undetected medical conditions, which, by the way, are all treatable. Now, uh, we're replicating not this, but um, another intervention I'll share with you in a moment called In It Together, Project COPE, in, uh, with uh, Rick Fortinsky in the Medicare waiver. And again, I'll just say that we have, um, you know, there'll be about 200, about th close to 300 people in the trial. But the first 10 people, nine out of 10, had a treatable, undetected medical condition. So this is a real issue. And what it means in terms of, um, you know, our, our protocol for dementia is important. At any rate, that's the nurse piece. And then the OT worked with the caregiver over time to identify what were the behaviors that were most stressful to them and or posed a safety issue to them or the person with dementia, and took them through a problem-solving approach uh, uh, much looser than what you use, frankly, but a series of questions about when does it occur, how does it occur, wh uh, you know, why do you think it occurs, what do you do, how, what do you do when, you know, it happens, before it happens, after it happens, all of that, and then come up with very specific strategies in these areas, how to communicate effectively, because uh, typically uh, behaviors may be triggered by poor communication 
strategies by the caregiver because no one's ever provided education about what these behaviors are and why they occur and how to minimize them, how to engage the person in activities, how to simplify tasks, and how to, isn't that weird, the modification, the end, on the modification, I just saw that, uh, how to make modifications, all to realign the physical and social environment to fit the capabilities of the person with dementia because it's this mismatch and it's the over expectation of what this person can do that is one of the drivers of behavioral symptoms, not totally. Okay, this is the nurse piece, um, and I'm just uh, want to go through this very quickly. So this just gives you examples of some of the communication strategies. They, they seem so simple, but honestly, families don't know anything about these strategies. They really don't. And it's not just telling them, and for many families, we had this discussion earlier, for, well, I'll just say for some families, here's a piece of paper, here are the top strategies, and they got it. For others, it really involves sitting down and helping them understand what their challenges are vis-a-vis -vis what we know about dementia, and that their husband can't change, but in fact they can. They can change their communication and their environment, and it can make a difference. And small changes can really make a big difference. So how do we practice with families? How to use different cueing techniques and so forth? Uh, we demonstrate all different ways of using different uh, cues. Uh, this is a very interesting situation where uh, the, this is a white commode against a white wall. And what happens, right? The caregiver says, I brought this commode and my wife doesn't even use it. What I tell her to use it, well, she can't see it. So I, unfortunately, I didn't, I didn't set this up right because I have a slide. What does he do? He figures out on his own, oh my God, she can't see it. It's white against white and her vision's getting impaired. So he puts an orange white washcloth on the back of here. Okay, I'm just because I can't get this one. He puts a white, a red, an orange washcloth right over there. So what do you think happens? Well, she uses the commode, but then she takes the washcloth and she dips it in the basin, and then she washes herself. Right, so he got the idea right. It's a great, bright color contrast, but he needs professional, you know. And so really putting duct tape in this way really solve the problem. Just giving you some examples. Here's a typical home in Philadelphia. Clutter. Do you have that here? <laughs> Only <laughs> in Baltimore, I have to say. And so what? The husband says, my wife won't go in the kitchen to eat, and she uses this walker, which you can see. So helping him organize better and, but, and educate. Why does it? She, we've always lived like this. It didn't matter before. So she should be able to do this. We've always lived like this. So providing the education, and a lot of families, not every family, but a lot of families need that hands-on education and, um, and professional, and professional uh, um, assistance. And here's an example. It's not the same environment, but here's an example of just helping a family design a clutter-free environment where there's also novelty, there's a mobile, a, the, this is a, um, um, a father, a son caring for his father, and he used to sit there and eat and look out at the squirrels and so forth. And why is this important? And how can you keep adjusting the environment to fit 
uh, different uh, capabilities as the disease progresses. Here's a great case of a woman, and what's the presenting problem? Um, the daughter and her mother live in a very small apartment, and the daughter is upset because her mother sits in this overstuffed chair. She does have some mobility problems, and she doesn't have anything to do, and she uses the commode every 15 minutes. So what does the daughter do? She withholds fluids because that's going to help, right? So what's your first thought? Well, we have to rule out, right, a UTI, urinary tract infection, we, and, and anything else going on metabolically, possibly. And we had, this is part of the act, so we had the nurse go in, and she's fine. But what's happening? If there was a commode in front of you, right, for 15 hours, what are you going to do? It's an activity. It's stimulation. You're going to get up. You're going to use it. It's something to do. So. Um, what, what can we do in this case? Again, through problem solving, when does it occur? Well, how does it occur? Uh, what, what are the consequences? How does the daughter get her to the commode? Uh, what other things are they doing? What's their daily routines like? Uh, several things were done, right? Moving the commode away from her, but within her reach in terms of she can ambulate, but she doesn't see it. It's not in her field of vision. Uh, actually, she needed better seating because she couldn't it was hard for her to maneuver in that chair. But also training the caregiver in terms of proper hydration, the nurse piece, reinforced by the OT piece, and then having a set of activities introduced. Uh, this was armchair gardening, was really effective. The problem went away. It's not a medical problem. The problem went away. And the woman is engaged. We have improvement of quality of life. We have a happier. Uh, daughter who feels relieved and less burdened and stressed and um, a mother as well. So in ACT, this kind of very targeted approach resulted in those who received the intervention in reporting a reduction in, you know, and things were getting better. Either eliminated, the behavior didn't occur, or it occurred with less frequency and they were better able to manage it. Uh, we show great benefits all along. I, well, let me just par let me uh, modify that. There are small but still important differences, if I can get this to work here, yeah, in burden, depressive symptoms, uh, in uh, upset with a range of disruptive behaviors, and just how caregivers perceived overall their life was going. So we impact the emotion, the actual behavioral occurrence, we impact the um, emotional life's uh, context of the caregiver, and here we impact also the skills. There are better confidence in managing behaviors. We showed a decline in the use of negative communications, which perpetuate uh, behaviors, and they report improved management skills. So we know what to do. Uh, this is a very effective intervention that's been replicated in different ways. We also used a very similar approach, but spent more time in terms of adapting the physical environment in a program called COPE. And we show here that we were able to reduce targeted problem areas that included both functional decline and behaviors, whatever the area was that the caregiver found to be most distressful to them. And we show over nine months that uh, families report an improvement in the person's, uh, the person they're caring for is life, and that they were able to keep the uh, person with dementia at home a great deal. And then the final I want to uh, share with you is a, an intervention that we're really excited about, but I'm 
I'm going to go fast here. Uh, this is called the Tailored Activity Program, and it's a pilot study funded by the NIMH and is now funded by the NIA to uh, look at it on a larger basis, and as well as the VA. It's actually being replicated in about 11 sites um, across the country and in Australia, Brazil, and in uh, Scotland is rolling it out in their country. And it is an OT-based intervention that involves up to eight home sessions, and it can be done over four months, three months, or six months. But there's one phase that's really critical, which is assessment, where we conduct a variety of assessments that are performance-based that give you information about what this person with dementia can do. So we have people in our studies with a zero mini mental status exam, but they're responsive to their environment. And they have, families been told, you know, they're really declined, you know. But we can design an activity. The whole point is to design an activity that's meaningful to the person with dementia and meets their capabilities. And we see the engagement piece, participation piece, as reducing behavioral symptoms. That is our you know, kind of model. So the assessment serves as an intervention itself. And I firmly believe, I mean, families have an aha moment. I didn't know my mom would sit there for 20 minutes. It's like the clock drill, you know, and engage in this kind of, it's a performance-based craft inter, um, assessment. Or I can't believe my dad didn't do that. I mean, he used to work with uh, tools all the time. So you just gave me really bad news. And we're there, well, Let's understand his capabilities, but what he can still, not only what he can't do, but what he still can do. I really believe, and one of my missions is to have this assessment as part of dementia care, and at any stage, like if it's six every six months or once a year or any change in status, that an OT assessment with these assessment tools are done because it gives you information about what the person can do so that you can continue to support quality of life which, if you remember, the six treatment goals is a major treatment goal for dementia care. After that, uh, goal, uh, activities are designed and families are trained in the use of these activities, which are tailored to abilities and so forth, and caregivers need to be trained how to cue because they'll go up to their, fam their husband uh, who has an MMSC of a five and say, oh, would you like to read the newspaper now? Well, what's your response? No, I don't know how to do that. So no, I don't want to do that. Versus here's a newspaper and there's your favorite story about, okay? So really helping families learn how to introduce activities is important. And then the third phase is generalizing and helping families use these strategies to solve other care problems. And also we're leaving after two months, three months, four months and the dementia is declining. How are you gonna change that activity? So we really work with families. I have to say that I think we have mixed success in generalizability because families are overwhelmed and they're dealing with the situation at the moment, but our intent is to help people understand and prepare for the future. So we see here, just to give you an idea, this is a woman with an MMSE of two. Uh, that she can still fold laundry and building on, um, you know, procedural memory. And she was a homemaker and she can fold laundry for her daughter. That's really important because she lives with her daughter and now she's connected. And guess what's really a funny thing that, not funny, it's very common. The daughter 
we don't want to make work for families, right? And so the daughter apologized one time when the OT came in and said, how's it going? She says, well, I didn't have any laundry to do this week, so I didn't do the activity. And so what does the OT have to do? It's not about, you don't have to do laundry. We set up this basket of towels, and this is just your mother's towels. So you give her the towels, she folds the laundry, you say, mom, great job, thank you for helping me. You take the basket, you ruffle up the towels, you bring them back later at night or the next day or whatever it is. Uh, and so families need to be taught that. But she didn't do it right. Well, that's okay. Is she anxious about not doing it right? No, she loved it. Well, that's the point, engagement. Really, this really shifts the paradigm from doing things right, it's all about engagement. So initially, the daughter wanted her mom to learn new things. She has an MMSE of two. No one explained to her what the disease is, and new learning is not going to happen. It's not. Uh, so we had to help her understand that her mom could still participate and have quality of life, right, by meeting where she was at. These are very common themes that we see in all of our families. Uh, she wanted, she was raised to do household tasks properly. Well, her mom didn't fold the towels the way she used to do. Well, that's okay, her mom wasn't frustrated. Her mom wasn't anxious. If she was, that's a different story. Uh, so there's no right or wrong as long as the person's safe and feels okay about it. It's stressful. Well, we teach a lot of stress reduction techniques and how to deal with situational anxiety. And we hear over and over that these techniques have saved, quote, unquote, my life. Uh, same thing, a woman, uh, her father, they're, they're, uh, moved in, not close, didn't like her father. She felt caregiving was stressful. She, um, she found the stress reduction techniques helpful. Uh, she wanted him to learn new things, same theme. Gear activities to where he is. Their relationship isn't close, but she learned how to help him uh, be integrated into the cooking. And you can see how he takes this job very seriously. He stood there for 20 minutes watching the water boil to make sure that the green beans were getting done because that was his job and he had a role in the household and a lot of the behaviors that they were experiencing disappeared okay you just a variety of activities and again just to show you i only have data from our pilot we show we i'm going to go real fast <laughs> reduction of so you have to believe me <laughs> but it's all published and so forth uh peer-reviewed um reduction of agitation overall improvement in the frequency of behaviors. Now, if you look at these very closely, you're going to see some benefit by the control group, which we can talk about, and you're also going to see some people who didn't benefit. There's about 20% of people in the intervention who still had agitation. So what that means for us, you know, is something that we're really uh, talking about. The, uh, improvement in the caregiver's efficacy. I want to say that this approach did not reduce depression or burden. I, I find that very interesting. It is all about activity for the person with dementia. But what it did do is reduce um, the amount of time caregivers reported having to do things by one hour over a um, one-month period with the caregiver reporting an extra three hours of having to care for the person. So we're saving caregivers a lot of time. Look at this. We have a three-hour increase reported by the control group in the amount of time they're spending with the caregiver. We have a five-hour reduction. It's subjective, but that's important. This is an indicator of, subject, of objective burden. So, you know, that's the impact it has. So these are the different sites. So I want to just, I'm going to have to close, so I want to leave time for questions. But how these interventions work, 
We're not sure, right? And if you think about it, we have all this disease stuff happening. We have some kind of behavioral intervention, and it's targeting the caregiver, it's targeting and or it's targeted the person with dementia or both, and it's targeting the environment or the caregiver, the environment, and the person with dementia or both. And we may have a direct effect on the, I'll call them the patient's mood and behaviors, which then, right, ha decreases or improves the caregiver, or it may be that the interventions directly impact the caregiver, and it's through the change in the caregiver that we impact the patient's benefits. We, this is real, I think this is really important for us to know if we're gonna move forward with a clinical understanding of what we're doing and why we're doing and linking these two outcomes. But we don't know necessarily these pathways. So I'm sorry that I ran out of time, but I'll, I can give you these slides. I was just trying to show you some pathways here. And I'll just conclude by saying that if you look at the evidence overall, I would call it the glass is half full and the glass is half empty. So full, we have an evidence base. We know to be effective, it can't be one thing. To be effective, you have to be where the caregiver's at. So if the caregiver, if you meet with a caregiver and they've just gotten a diagnosis, you know they need to do end-of-life planning, and if they can't do it, you're not going to be effective. So it's really trying to figure out, right, where the caregiver's at, what their immediate needs are, and then helping them prepare for the future. Um, so we have the know-how. Now, the glass is half empty in terms of what I said before. There are measurement concerns here. We haven't measured all the things we really need to understand. There's, we have a few, but we don't have a lot of cost data, for example. We have very little health utilization data. Clinical significance is unclear. Our interventions are not well linked to the etiology and or disease. So if you are a clinician and you have someone with frontal uh, lobe FTD, frontal lobe dementia, are any of the interventions I said worthwhile? I don't know, because we haven't characterized our, you know, our uh, sample populations well enough. So that, that's a challenge in transferring this. Uh, we, uh, lack of intervention specificity. Um, how much exposure, for example, to an activity is important? Does a person have to, like Mr. Mrs. B, does she have to do folding, <laughs> you know, folding um, towels every day for 30 minutes to have an impact? Or maybe we don't need that level of precision, but we need something, right? We need something to be able to say what to do, to prescribe, if you will, activity. Um, I think that this is a very complex clinical issue we have of we have person with dementia, we have caregivers, we have family dynamics, and I think the most effective are interventions are multi-component, yet that's hard for scalability and getting it out. So we're really challenged by that. Uh, I would say that what we're really working on now is taking a look not of the 200 interventions, but of key interventions and layering them. For example, maybe everyone should get what's called savvy caregiver. But then there's some, after that, they still aren't managing behaviors and they need our act or they need our cope. All right? Not every, I don't believe everybody needs act. But 
how do we layer them and make this clinically meaningful? So that just gives you, you know, an understanding. Funding has not permitted us to understand um, long-term effects, except for the adult day, which, again, I think is a great model for how you integrate these things into service settings. Uh, interventions remain uh, totally outside of service delivery. So we have inter 200 interventions. We have 16 that have been uh, published studies of translational efforts. And if you take a look at the impact, it's 0.0003% of families of 15 million who have gotten our interventions. So we have a huge knowledge translational problem. So we need more research and we need translation of what we have. Uh, and I just want, and so that's it. That's what I wanted to say. And I just wanted to say that one of the things that we're really focusing on is taking the best evidence and turning them into clinical tools. So we do have a little booklet here, um, and it's all of our strategies that we've used in all of our interventions arranged by behaviors. And the Washington Post reviewed it very simply with one line that said, sometimes you just need a checklist. Uh, and so we find this very, very helpful. And um, we, this is what we're doing with, uh, this is a with collaboration with Helen Kales. We've taken all of these strategies and we have a particular algorithm that Dr. Lykhetsos and Dr. Kales and I have worked on called DICE. I don't have time to get into it, but we've made it into an app and we're beta testing it now to help families pro actively problem solve and come up with tailored strategies. Because what works in one family does not work in another family. So tailoring is very critical. And then I just want to say that we've taken a lot of what we've learned and turned it into a massive online course, which we're really excited about. We've had over 50,000 people participate from over 169 countries. And our vision is that it's not just about the brain disease. That if you just understand the pathology, you don't understand dementia. You have to understand the brain pathology as it relates to that person, as it relates to that person who lives in a home, as it relates to their community and other family members. So um, th this is a direction that we're trying to move towards, creating new knowledge, yes, but also we have some responsibility to repackage in ways that this can all be integrated into uh, delivery, because that's what we're really challenged by. So I went over, I'm sorry. So thank you. <laughs> So I know it's over time, but I'll be here. I don't know if you want to ask questions now or if, yeah. So thank you. This was really amazing. I mean, your, your work is just, uh, it's just, you know, so helpful for so many people. Um, and I think that's, that's really the point of how much um, this helps actually older adults. Um, I think a couple of things. One of the challenges we have in rural uh, America is that the financing for mechanism for adult day uh, doesn't really allow us to do that. Um, so we've had several adult days just financially have to close. Um, so that's a challenge. Um, so that brings me to thinking about the team. And when we think about the, the impact that we have on caregivers and patients and the teams, we think about, for example, primary care. So this is obviously not something that a primary care provider can do all this. So it's got to be about that team that's set up in primary care. It has to be about the team in the senior sector working with the social service providers. 
Um, so that's some of what we'll talk about uh, uh, this afternoon. But I think um, I totally agree with you. And I, I mean, just to say that I, I know you're familiar. I mean, with Callahan's model and primary collaborative care, you know, has its own hidden costs and 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 obviously not so hidden challenges. But there are models, and and I think that any one of these particular constellations of you know care management plus problem solving, they all work, and we have the evidence to show that. But now, how I think what you're saying is how do we put it together? And some of the solutions have to be local. But I want to say one other thing. I think in dissemination, which is part of knowledge transfer, there is a strong policy piece here. Now, whether that's what any one of our, us do is a different story. But we cannot ignore the policy issue here because these adult day centers should not be closing, right? And families should be, you know, have the monetary means to, you know, or some kind of offset to, to use it. So. And, and again, I'll just use your example of the team. There has to be recognition. We need a policy person in our quarter, you know, in our in our uh, on our team who's going to push this, uh, because there has to be a change. Yeah. In, and, it, and, and I think again, when we think about you know accountable care, we think about moving forward. Yes. How do we measure? Well, I mean, you've obviously done a tremendous job in terms of measuring how to support that adult day. To, to reduce institutionalization and all the things that are really high cost. Like right, and, right, yeah. right. No, totally agree. And I think that if, if the adult day also would work in senior centers, but I think most senior centers will say they don't have, and you know, they don't have enough of uh, uh, density or population census, I should say, to make it worth their while to to do. So that's the other problem we have. We know we have to meet caregivers of people with dementia wherever they are. But it's the same issue with depression and primary care, and the impact model has been stalled to some extent. I mean, they've done an amazing dissemination job, but if a primary care does not have the census of people who are depressed, then why would they invest in a collaborative model? So, I mean, it's, oh, it's so hard. <laughs> yeah, great, great, great questions, great points. Great, thank you. And are these available online? Or oh, yeah. Uh, these no uh, well well oh no I uh, the, this is the uh, MOOC is offered it's a massive online open course it's free uh, um, various hospitals have used it in providing foundational knowledge it's now closed and Coursera is supposed to open it and I can let you guys know when it's supposed to be opened again uh, and then the uh, the caregiver guide is available through Amazon and the we care uh, app is in a beta testing phase and it's not available I should have made that clear but we hope to make it available soon. Thank you. Thank you.